All right, Genesis chapter 27, a tangled web, a faithful God. What I want to do is I want to start with the, the first point as we kind of walk through this story by looking at the different scenes of the story. And then I'm going to read the scripture for you. So it's going to kind of save us some time to read a little chunk at a time because it's a, it's a long uh, chapter. But just kind of a word of context, over in Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to a man named Abram, and he gave him some really wonderful promises. The world was mired in depravity and sin, and God had a rescue plan ready to go, and he came to Abram to, dis- to explain to him how he would be a part of this rescue plan. He said, Abram, I'm going to give you a son, which was a miraculous promise because Abram and his wife Sarah were beyond childbearing years, and they had not been able to have a child Together, And so that was a miraculous promise for Abram. I want to give you a child, and then your child will have descendants, and your descendants will constitute a great nation. We know that great nation as the Israelites or the Hebrew people. And God said to Abram, I'm going to give this people, this, this nation I'm going to build from your descendants, I'm going to give them a land in which to live, a promised land. And then he said, through your descendants... All the peoples, all the ethnic people groups on the face of the earth will be blessed. And so the question becomes, how did God use the Hebrews to bless all the different people groups? People from every tribe and tongue and language and culture. How did God use the Hebrew people to bless all the people on the face of the earth? Every, everyone from every different background. How could they experience blessing from the Hebrew people? Well, the answer is this. One day, through the Hebrews, God sent a Messiah named Jesus, right? Jesus came from heaven to earth, the second person of the Godhead, born of the Virgin Mary, a young Jewish girl, fully God, fully man. And Jesus came to this earth and took on human flesh so he could die for our sins. He went to the cross as our substitute. He paid the penalty that we could not pay, the infinite debt that we owed. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, early on that Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. He defeated death itself. He rose from the grave. And so because he rose from the grave, because he's alive today, he can give us eternal life. He can forgive us of our sins because he died for our sins. And now... If anyone from any ethnicity, any language, any culture, if anyone places their faith in Christ, they can be blessed with salvation, right? So that's how that promise to to Abraham is being fulfilled in our world today. Every time someone from a different language, different culture, uh, places their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that promise is coming to fruition, the, the promise that God made to Abraham. So God made these great promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then we see... Abraham living a life of faith because the promises did not come to fruition immediately. He had to believe God and, and walk in faith. And we see him you know, having high moments of faith and, and, and moments where he struggled, but we learn a lot from Abraham. And then God comes through and God gives Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac. And, and we see Isaac begin to build a family because God gives Isaac Rebekah. And, and we see the narrative... Uh, focus on Isaac. It shifts from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac. because we, we learn in chapters 25-26, Abraham and Sarah uh, died. And so now we're going to see how Isaac, Abraham's descendant, their son, how he carries on this lifestyle of faith and how he's a part of God's redemptive plan. And what we see here is, is a mess. Isaac's family was a 
mess, major dysfunction. And we're going to see this here in Genesis chapter 27. So, let's look at number one. First thought I want you to walk away with tonight. And there are only two. Only, only two points tonight. A two-point sermon. What do you think about that? I don't like to deceive you. Every point, both points are probably 30 minutes in length. But only two points, all right? Number one, when we try to live without God, we will make a mess of things. And all God's people said, <laughs> all right, when we try to live without God, we will make a mess of things. How many know that by experience? Right? if you know that by experience. Yeah, trying to do life without God, trying to make your way without God as your priority, it, it never works out good, does it? It, it just never, it never turns out well when you try to live your life that way. And, and we see this exemplified in a negative way in the life of Isaac's family. So what we're going to do is we're going to just take a few moments and examine this family's dysfunction and learn from it. So the first character we're going to learn from is Isaac. Isaac. Abraham and Sarah's son, the one that God's going to give descendants to. He's going to build a nation from his descendants. And so it says there in chapter 27, verse 1, When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt, for, hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, a little bit of context. Remember that Isaac and Rebekah had two sons. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. Remember that story? Uh, Esau was first, but Jacob was hanging on to his heel, and the name of Jacob, which means heel grabber. And, and we see that this, this conflict that started in the womb of Rebekah continued on between Esau and Jacob, and it was exacerbated by the fact that Isaac and Rebekah were playing favorites. Isaac's favorite was who? Esau. Rebekah's favorite was Jacob, and that just causes a whole host of problems. And we're going to see this played out in our chapter. So Isaac uh, favors Esau... And Isaac is ready to, to give the blessing of the firstborn to Esau. Now, here's the problem with that. With Isaac trying to give the blessing of the firstborn to Esau, Isaac knew better. Isaac knew better. Look what it says there in the text. Isaac knew that Esau would serve Jacob. Turn back to chapter 25. Chapter 25. Remember... Rebecca feels the conflict between the twins in her womb. She knows something's not quite right, and she goes to the Lord and asks her why she's having these strange sensations and pains. And in chapter 25, verse 23, it says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to form two nations from your two sons, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall what? Serve the younger. So Isaac and Rebekah knew that, that things were going to be different here. They knew that Esau would not have the, the usual place of, of prominence and preeminence that the firstborn had. They knew that this was going to go to Jacob. Now, they probably didn't understand why, but they knew this was the case. And then later on in the narrative between Jacob and Esau, near, near the end of chapter 25, we see that Esau comes in from hunting, and he's really, really hungry. And Jacob says, listen, I know you're really hungry, uh, but 
uh, I, I got some, some, a, a pot of beans that I've been making. Doesn't it smell great? And I, I, I'd love to give you this pot of beans. Um, but but sell, me, sell me your birthright for the beans. If you want the beans, I'll give, I'll give them to you, but you need to give me your birthright. By the way, you always need to be careful when a sibling offers another sibling something. I remember one time I was a little guy and I came running in from outside and I was hot and I was sweaty. And my brother Jeff, who was six years older than me, said, Hey, you want some, I just made some lemonade. Cool, glad you want some lemonade? I said, oh, I'd love So he, he had this cup, and I could, it was not a clear cup. That should have been my first hint. I got some lemonade for you here. It's cold. Wait, just, just drink up this lemonade. I started drinking. It was pickle juice. And I don't know if you've ever taken a couple just swigs of pickle juice. Uh, yeah. Make your mouth go like, yeah. And so, so you got to, when a sibling just offers something out of the gratitude of their heart, you got to watch out. But Jacob here says to, to, to Esau, he says, listen, uh, I'll give you the beans, just sell, sell me your birthright. And, and Esau, Hebrew says, despised the birthright and says, okay, you, you can have the birthright, the position of the firstborn, if, if you can just give me those beans. And that's because he was worldly. He was driven by his appetites and not by uh, a lifestyle that wanted to honor God and, and the position God had given him in his life. And Hebrews seems to make a connection between the, 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 the birthright and the firstborn blessing. And so Isaac knew this, and Isaac knew that Esau did not have the, the right to the firstborn blessing. But Isaac liked Esau, so Isaac wanted to just make it happen anyway. Everybody see what's happening here? So Isaac knew that Esau would serve Jacob. Also, Isaac decided his desire was more important than God's word. He knew all of this. He, he knew what God had said about the two nations, the, the older will serve the younger, but he liked Esau, and he wanted Esau to have that firstborn blessing. And so he wants to just take matters into his own hands, like we're often uh, prone to do, and he said, I'm just going to give him the blessing. I'm going to bless him as the patriarch, and he's going to be the firstborn. He's going to get the blessing, and, and what he wanted was more important than what God had said. And listen to me, whenever what we desire becomes more important to us, than God's truth, and we are headed down a dangerous road. Do you hear me? Whenever what we want becomes more important, we're blinded by our desires, and we ignore the clear teachings of the Word of God, we are headed for disaster. I can't tell you the people that, that, that I've talked to through the years and counseling in other situations, and, and they're headed down a dangerous road, and I'll quote to them the Bible, and their eyes just glaze over. I don't want to hear all that. I don't want to hear all that. And, and they're headed down a dangerous road. And, and that's where Isaac was living. And so here's the lesson for you and for me. Because 1 Corinthians says that all of the, the information about the Old Testament was given for our example, so we could learn from, uh, fr- from these lives. The lesson is God's Word should always take priority in our lives. God's Word should always take priority in our lives. And just to drive this point home, let's turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Love Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is all about revelation. Uh, God's revelation to us. The first half is God's revelation through creation, that God shows His glory through the created order. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible says. But then, in verse 7, this psalm begins to speak of special revelation, where God gives us specific information about Himself. And look what it says in... Uh, Psalm 19, verse 7. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So You see, people think that God's commandments are there. Many think God's commandments are there to take away their fun. They think God's in heaven and He just wants to take everybody's fun. He wants to just have everybody live you know, in a certain way that, that is boring and dull. And his commandments there are to take away anything from us that would be uh, entertaining or enjoyable. That is not the case at all. Listen, God made us. He's our creator. And if God made us, he knows what's best for us and he knows what's damaging to us, correct? So his commandments are there to keep us from things that can damage us and to move us towards things that are good for us. Over in 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says, The commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. He doesn't give them to us to weigh us down. He gives them to us because he knows if we keep them, we will experience abundant life. That's what his commandments are about. That's what it says here. He says, verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Now look in verse 11. Moreover, by them, by your commandments, is your servant warned against things that destroy. In keeping them, there is great reward. There's great reward in keeping God's commandments. And and we need to always remember that and not be like Isaac and ignore what God says and try to do our own thing. We can learn from Isaac's example. But the second character back in Genesis 27 we need to learn from is Rebekah. There's a lot to learn from Rebecca. Look in Genesis chapter 27 with me. Verse 5. Genesis 27 verse 5. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock. Bring me two good young goats that I may prepare from them a delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. I always thought that was funny. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will... Feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. So he's being practical here. If I reach out to embrace him, he feels my smooth arms. He'll know I'm not Esau. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me. I can't believe she said that. My son, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Now what's Rebecca doing here? Well, look there in your notes. Rebecca was guilty of playing favorites, eavesdropping. When it says in verse 5 that Rebecca was listening, the, the... the sense you get is not that she was sitting in the room with them, just enjoying a nice conversation. It seems like she's perhaps in the other room, just you know, her, her ear crane, her neck crane, her ear attentive to what was being said. She was eavesdropping. She used deception and scheming. So just straight 
dishonesty. We're going to make him think, your father think, that you are Esau. I'm going to make the food that he loves. He's going to think Esau prepared it for him. I'm going to put uh, goat skins on your arms and hands so when he feels, he'll feel the hair. By the way, Esau must have been really hairy, right? If he would have mistaken goat skin for Esau. But anyway, I'm going to do all of that. And it's just straight deception, straight scheming to get what she wanted. Her desire, listen, for Jacob to receive the primary blessing was more important than her integrity. Her desire for Jacob to receive the primary blessing was more important than her integrity. And again, when you find yourself wanting something so badly that you're willing to dispense with integrity to get it, you're headed for destruction. So here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. We should always seek to do the right thing in the right way. Now... If we confronted Rebecca with her scheming and eavesdropping and deception, she might have said something like this, Well, God told me that the older would serve the younger. So I'm just, I'm just making it happen the way God wants it to happen. I'm doing what God wants. But was she doing what God wanted in the way God wanted? The answer is no. See, integrity is not just doing the right thing or trying to get the right result. Integrity is doing the right thing in the right way. Turn, turn over to Proverbs with me, Proverbs chapter 10. This verse helps drive the point home. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Rebecca decided to use deception to get her way, and it caused a multitude of problems. Family division. Esau wanted to kill Jacob. More on that later. I mean, it just caused a mess. And by the way, because Esau wanted to kill Jacob, Jacob had to leave town. And based upon the biblical record, he probably never saw Rebecca again. Think about that. Think about the consequences for her deception. And so she was guilty of laying aside her integrity to get what she wanted. So we should always seek to do the right thing and do it in the right way. That's what integrity is all about. Now let's talk about Jacob for a moment. What about Jacob? Is, how's Jacob doing in all of this dysfunction? Is Jacob clean and clear? The answer is absolutely not. Turn over to Genesis 27 again with me. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Genesis 27. Look what it says in verse 18. So he, Jacob, went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. So if you look there in your notes, Jacob blatantly lied. Right? Who are you? And Jacob says, I'm Esau. I mean, just a straight lie. Jacob blatantly lied, but listen, it gets worse. Jacob also blasphemed God. Look at the next verse. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. He brings God into his lie. That's scary, isn't it? 
I mean, if I was him, I'd be looking up like, am I about to be struck dead for saying this? I mean, just straight deception and blasphemy. He brings God into his lie. He brings God into his, his deceptive lifestyle. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. By the way, I've had people tell me before, they're doing something that is directly contrary to the Word of God. They're making decisions that are directly contrary to what God says, directly violating the Word of God. And they'll say something like this, well, I prayed about it, and God gave me a peace. No, He didn't. God didn't give you a peace to run off on your wife. God didn't give you that peace, because God says you shall not commit adultery. So God's not going to give you a, a peace to do what He's told you not to do, Right? And it's dangerous when you want to start bringing God into your sin and saying God's giving you the permission. Wow, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And that's what Jacob's doing here. He's bringing God into his sin. And so here's the the lesson for us to learn from Jacob. Listen, you cannot honor God and live deceitfully at the same time. You cannot honor God and live deceitfully at the same time. I was listening to a podcast yesterday on my ride home. I was listening to uh, the Dave Ramsey show. He's the, you know, the financial guru. And a woman called into his show and she said, she said, I've got $40,000 of debt that my husband knows nothing about. And, and I need you to tell me the best way to pay this debt off um, before he finds out. And Dave Ramsey said, are you, are you asking me to help you deceive your husband? Is that, is that what you're, is you, did you really just ask me to do that? And she's like, well, maybe. (laughs) He said, I'm not going to help you deceive your husband. Step one, sit down and tell your husband. That's the first step. Don't don't live by deception. Deception is going to just cause more heartache. Deception never delivers. It it always blows up in your face. And listen, he's going to say, if you're going to see the guy of your financial mess, you can't do it and expect God's blessing when you're living deceptively. You cannot honor God and live deceitfully at the same time. Hold that thought and turn to Proverbs 6 with me. A lot of Proverbs tonight. Always a good thing. Look in Proverbs 6. Really striking passage of Scripture. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Now this verse ought to get your attention. There are six things that the Lord hates. That ought to cause you to perk up, right? What does God hate? Look what he says. Seven that are an abomination to him. What is abominable in God's eyes? Here it is. Haughty eyes, that's pride. A lying tongue. Everybody say one. He mentioned lying once. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness that breathes out lies. Somebody say two. Two. And one who sows discord among brothers. Two things on the list that God hates. Two things deal with deception, deal with lying. God hates lying. So there's no way you can live a deceptive life and honor God at the same time. Those two things are mutually exclusive, right? It's just not going to happen. And so learn from Jacob. Don't try to get by with your scheming and with your deception. But what about Esau? What can we learn from Esau? Back in Genesis 27, we're just 
jumping right in the middle of the dysfunction, right in the middle of the mess, all right? Trying to learn some lessons here. Look what happens in verse 21. Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went to, uh, near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Remember the goat's hair. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? This is like his last chance to come clean. He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. He brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And here's the firstborn blessing. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. It's like a soap opera, isn't it? Jacob walks off and here comes Esau. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's gain that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me, heel grabber. He's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him lord over you, and all his brothers I've given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me even also. Uh, all my fathers. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. In other words, life's going to be hard. Away from the dew of heaven on high, by your sword you shall live. You're not going to live a nice, peaceful life. By your sword you shall live. You shall serve your brother. You'll be subservient to your brother. He'll have power over you. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. There's future conflict between your descendants and the descendants of your brother. And by the way, you can follow this conflict all the way through the Old Testament. Between, between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. And so, what's happening here? What's, what's Esau going through? Well, Esau, if you look in your notes, had already displayed a worldly attitude toward his birthright. Esau had already displayed a worldly attitude towards birthright. He was quick to give up his birthright because he was hungry. And he lived by his, his, his fleshly appetites and, and disdained the things of God, the things that God thought were important. He was a worldly man. And Hebrews seems to indicate there's a connection between the, the birthright and the blessing. Those things were not separate things. They were connected. And so because he lost the blessing, he lost, I mean, the, the birthright, he lost the blessing as well. And so when Esau discovers the truth that Jacob had stolen his blessing, Esau developed murderous intentions. Look in verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, 
The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you up from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like Esau had, if, if, if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so Isaac and Rebekah make arrangements for uh, for Jacob to go and marry someone from his people and not one of the pagan people in that land. But Esau developed murderous intentions. When dad dies and the morning's over, I'm going to kill Jacob. Murder, hatred, worldliness. And so here's the, here's the, the teachable moment. Here's the lesson from Esau. Don't be worldly because the world will never satisfy. Romans 12.1, the Bible says... In view of God's mercies, uh, present your body as a, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So here's how you ought to live life. You give your life for the service of the Lord. You give your life completely to God. It's all His. You surrender all as an act of worship, and you don't give your life to the things of this world. You don't let yourself be conformed to this world. Don't be worldly. The things of the world will never satisfy. And so we're talking about life without God and how we make a mess of things without God. So look there at that quote I have in your notes. I think, is there a quote there by Alan Ross, a kind of extended quote? The the details of this act weave a tangled web. In fact, all the participants were at fault. Isaac, whether he knew of the earlier sale of the birthright or not, did know the oracle of God that the elder would serve the younger. Yet he set himself to thwart it by blessing Esau. Esau, in agreeing to the plan, broke his oath to Jacob. 25.33, Hebrews implies that when he sold the birthright, he lost the blessing too. Rebekah and Jacob, with a just cause, went about achieving it by deception with no faith or love. Theirs would be the victory, although they obtained only what God declared they would receive anyway, but they would reap the appropriate fruit of hatred and separation. Rebekah never saw her beloved Jacob again. That's a mess, isn't it? This is a mess. And so you read a chapter like this, you say, okay, where's God in all this? God had made these great promises that would end in redemption and salvation available to all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so how's God's plan going to stay on track in the midst of all of this dysfunction? How's that going to work? Well, that gives, gives us the, the second point or leads us to the second point, and this is where it really gets good. You ready? In spite of the dysfunction of his people, God's plans move forward. Can I get an amen on that? In spite of the dysfunction of his people, God's plans move forward. Or or let me say it like this. Our dysfunction does not derail God's purposes. I'm I'm really grateful. Aren't you glad that that God's plans don't rest upon, uh, upon a person's faithfulness? They rest in the character and nature of God and His sovereignty and His plan to redeem a lost and dying world. So what's happening here as we see all the dysfunction in chapter 27? Well, here's what we see. First of all, God remained faithful to His promise to Abraham. God remained faithful to His promise to Abraham. He gave Abraham Abraham and Sarah Isaac. He gave Isaac and Rebekah Jacob. He's going to give Jacob 
uh, a host of sons. Uh, he's building a nation, just like he told Abraham he would. And so just because there's a mess here doesn't mean God stops doing what he's doing. God's working to provide a Savior. So even in the midst of the dysfunction, God is still carrying out his plans and his promises. Secondly, God remained faithful to provide a Savior for dysfunctional people like us. It's easy to reach chapter 27 and point our fingers at the, the, the craziness that was the patriarchs. But we all need to kind of point the finger back at ourselves, don't we? And say, we've made a mess of things too. We've all sinned. We've all done deceptive things. We've all lacked integrity at certain times in our lives. We've all tried to take matters in our own hands. We've all been driven by worldliness instead of a desire to honor God. We, 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 can, we can look at, at, at Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, and if we look carefully, we can see a little bit of ourselves in them, can't we? Which makes what God's doing here all the more remarkable. God is keeping his promise to Abraham so that he can provide a Messiah. He can provide a Savior for us. We need it. We need a Savior, don't we? Need, we need a Savior for our sins. So God was remaining faithful to provide a Savior through the Hebrew people. And he did not go back on his promise. Even though they were dysfunctional, God's still working to send a Messiah named Jesus. But here's the third neat thing. That's kind of the big picture, God providing a Savior for the world. But God also, in this passage, remained faithful to continue to work in this family's lives. So he's working to provide redemption, but he's also still working in this individual family's life. He doesn't just, he doesn't just say, okay, I'm sick of that, and you know, I'm through with him. God continues to work. And we're going to see in the coming chapters how God pursues Jacob. And it's a great, I'm telling you, the, the next few chapters are are extraordinary. We're going to see Jacob wrestle with God, and we're going to see Jacob and Bethel in a stairway from heaven, which points to Jesus, and we'll get all that. But, but what we're going to see in the coming chapters is God, God showing his grace to the trickster named Jacob. And it's, it's, it's awesome to watch. And so God's remaining faithful to continue his work in this family's lives. Now here's the takeaway for all of us in this room tonight. When God begins a work, he finishes it. Even when we stumble and fall. Don't miss that. When God begins a work, he finishes it. Even when we stumble and fall. And let me show you this in in God's word. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, one of my favorite verses. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, that he who began a good work in you, that means the moment they were saved, he, you, you, you heard the gospel, you placed your faith in Christ, you were converted, you were born again. He who began a good work in you, God began a good work in me when I was nine years old. That's when he encountered my life. 
showed me my need for a Savior. My pastor shared the gospel with me. I called upon the name of the Lord. I was saved at nine years of age. That's when God began his work in my life. Look what it says. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? So if God saved you, God's going to finish what he started. He always does. Even when you stumble and fall, God's going to continue to work in your life. He doesn't just put you on the shelf and say, well, I'm through with you. He continues to work. He continues to mold. He disciplines if he needs to as our loving father to get our attention. He convicts us. He helps us. He encourages us. He puts people around us. But God continues to work in our life. The Spirit in us makes us more and more like Jesus over time. That's what the, the Spirit of God does. It's called sanctification. It's a beautiful thing. And one day God will bring it all to completion. And the Bible says we get to heaven, we'll see Jesus, 1 John 3, and we will see Him and be like Him. It's going to make us perfect. Free from the presence of sin itself. Isn't that awesome? And while you're there in the New Testament, look in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says there in verse 11, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also uh, live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless... He remains what? Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so God's plans for our lives are not derailed by our faithlessness. He's still faithful. And he's still going to do what he needs to do in our life to bring us home to heaven and make us like Jesus. So I'm not not sure yet. Well, turn to Psalm 57 with me. Psalm 57. Then we're going to close with just one of the precious promises in the Bible. Look in Psalm 57 with me, verse 2. It's a psalm of David. He's in the cave, fleeing from Saul. Life's falling apart. He's being pursued by an enemy here. And he says in Psalm 57, verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. I like that. I cry out to God. Why? Because God's the one who will come through. God's the one who will fulfill His purpose for me. When we're in trouble, He's going to fulfill His purpose for us. When we stumble and fall, He's going to fulfill His purpose for us. When we're struggling, He's going to bring to completion what He started. Amen? That's the kind of God we serve. He is faithful. And then turn to Psalm 23. Oh, I love Psalm 23. Have you read Psalm 23 lately? You need to read Psalm 23. It's good stuff. Another Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And here it is. Verse 3. He restores my soul. That means when you stumble, when you fall, God restores your soul. You've heard me share this illustration before, but it's too good not to share again. 
Uh, there's a book by J. Philip Keller called A, a Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And the, Philip Keller is a real shepherd. I mean, he really kept sheep. And so he was reading the 23rd Psalm about the Lord being a shepherd through a shepherd's eyes and making application uh, between what he saw in his keeping of sheep and the spiritual uh, truths presented in Psalm 23. And when he talked about the verse... He restores my soul. He made an interesting insight from his care of sheep. He said one of the jobs of the shepherd was to look for cast sheep. And a cast sheep is a sheep that would, that would you know, sheep can be kind of clumsy. A, a, a sheep that would stumble and fall, maybe in a depression in the ground, they would kind of roll over on their back and their center of gravity would shift and they were literally on their back, unable to get back on their feet. And Philip Keller says in this this position, this condition, the gases in their body would build up, and if they stayed there too long, the sheep would die. And so the shepherd is constantly looking for cast sheep. He's looking to see if there's any sheep that are flat on their back, feet in the air, unable to do anything about their condition, unable to save themselves. And if they saw, if they saw a, a shepherd saw a cast sheep, they would go, I love this, they would pick the sheep up, listen, and put the sheep back on his feet. And J. Philip Keller says that's what it means when it says God restores our soul. He finds his sheep that have stumbled and fallen. And in his grace, he comes along beside them and he picks them up and he puts them back on their feet. That's restoration. That's what God does for his sheep. Why? Because we're good and we deserve it? No, because he is faithful. He finishes what he starts. And it, listen, if you've ever experienced God coming up, coming up beside you and putting you back on your feet, you know how, how wonderful it is. You know how good it is when God puts you back on your feet and dusts you off and walks along beside you to go in a new direction in your life. You know how good it is when God does that. You know how, how wonderful it is when your soul has been restored. And so... We see in the midst of all this mess, God's still working, isn't he? God doesn't say, Jacob, I'm through with you, you trickster. I'm done with you. He says, I'm going to pursue Jacob. And Jacob's going to honor me with his life because I'm going to get a hold of his heart. And he's going to become a worshiper of mine. And we're going to see where I believe Jacob's converted in the coming, in the coming weeks and how his life changed after his conversions. I can't wait to get to that. But God's still continuing to work. Let, let me read this quote to you. It's an extended quote, but it, it's really good. It's by R. Kent Hughes. Talking about this family, the patriarchs, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau. He writes, Everyone in the family sought the blessings of God without bending the knee to God. That'll preach, won't it? You ever sought the blessings of God without bending your knee to God? God, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, but you're not really interested in Him being your Lord? Everyone in the family sought the blessings of God without bending the knee to God. This little family was fraught with ambition, jealousy, envy, lying, deceit, coveting, malice, manipulation, stubbornness, and stupidity. <laughs> wow. And everyone lost. Rebecca was forced to send her pet son to far-off Mesopotamia, away from his father's house in a destitute condition. Jacob was gone for 20 years, and it appears that his mother never saw him again. 
Jacob's exile was just payment for his deceiving Esau as he experienced the extended miseries of conflict and exploitation at the hands of his uncle Laban. Jacob went through some tough stuff in the coming years. He got tricked himself. The the trickster got tricked. Truly, blind old Isaac had tossed a torch into his family's tents by his fighting against God's word. And Esau, who despised his birthright, lost everything. But in and above this is something of immense beauty and grandeur. The invincible determination of God to keep his word despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of his people. God fulfilled his word despite Isaac's opposition, despite Rebekah and Jacob's manipulation, and despite Esau's indifference. The invincible determination of God will see to it that his people are sanctified. Here, the figurative earthquake in Isaac's life called him back to a life of faith. And Jacob was further pushed along the path that would result in his becoming Israel, a prince of God. Fellow believers, and here it is. Fellow believers, amidst our sins and our stupidities, the invincible determination of God is set to bring us to completion, even when we resist it. That's the kind of God we serve. Listen to me. You may have family members and friends and acquaintances and co-workers that have given up on you. But listen, if you're God's child, he doesn't give up on you. He restores you. He continues his work in you. He will bring it to completion if you're his child. Now, if you're not his child, if you're not his sheep, if he's not your shepherd, you can't claim these promises. You're headed for hell. Eternity separated from him. He's not your father. He is your judge. But oh, when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he saves you and he begins this wonderful work of invincible determination to make you like Jesus and bring you home to heaven. It's amazing. It's amazing to experience. Listen. The Lord as your shepherd. That only happens through Jesus Christ.